Thanks for listening to Health Science Starts Here. Here at Salus, we have three clinics, the Eye Institute, the Pennsylvania Ear Institute, and the Speech-Language Institute. So each May, we like to highlight the hardworking audiologists and speech-language pathologists at PEI and SLI who provide life-altering treatment and raise awareness about communication disorders. We sat down with the clinical director of SLI, Bob Siriani, to learn more about Better Hearing and Speech Month. I'm Bob Siriani. I'm the clinic director and assistant professor in the Department of Speech-Language Pathology, and I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you. We're excited to have you here to talk about Better Speech and Hearing Month. Uh, as May is, according to ASHA, which is the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. So first off, could you describe what a communication disorder is? So communication crosses multiple channels uh, from the thoughts that we have through uh, verbally expressing ourselves. Uh, A communication disorder would be any breakdown in the understanding of thoughts and words through the expression of those thoughts and words. So it could be um, a motor speech disorder where the articulators or the structures in your mouth have difficulty forming sounds through, um, you know, you're really not sure where you are or where you need to go because you have, you know, cognitive problems associated with dementia. So communication really spans a very broad, many broad aspects of our lives. How do speech disorders differ from language disorders? So language is uh, the the expression or the understanding of the thoughts. Um, So we have language when we write, we use language when we read, we use language when we talk. Speech is the motor aspect or the sounds that that come out of our mouths. And speech where my language might be the same as your language, but you might sound like you're from Boston and I might sound like I'm from the South. So our speech might be a little bit different. We call that dialectical variation, Um, but our language is still the same. Um, Language is... uh, you know, has those multiple modalities. Um, Speech also does too. Um, Speech aspects also include your voice. As I always describe it, the voice is sort of the music of your speech. It's what makes you sound like you. Um, We also talk about fluency as it's related to speech, and that's commonly known as stuttering. So those aspects, how fluently we talk, what we sound like, it are the the aspects of speech and then what we have to say the how we use the words or the way we write the words uh, really becomes our language Um, so how do communication disorders in infants and young children differ from communication disorders in adults Um, although we don't always assume that they have it we do um, look to adults to think that they've developed communication aspects. Uh, So although some argue that you are constantly developing your communication abilities, uh, most of us know how to talk and and use our language pretty early in life. Um, So that when an adult has an injury like a stroke or develops something like Parkinson's disease, 
they are losing a skill that they've acquired. Uh, children, however, um, they're like blank slates, so they develop speech and language skills. So if they're not developing as quickly as their peers, or if they're um, injured early in life so that they have difficulty developing those skills, uh, then we don't have a really a basis to judge how well they've talked. Like, think about a child that's born with a cleft lip and palate. They don't have the mechanisms to pronounce the sounds or they'll have difficulty um, e eating and drinking because the structures of their mouths are, uh, you know, did not form properly. Um, but a person who's gone through life, maybe they've gone to law school and they've had a practice downtown and all of a sudden has a bike accident and uh, hits their head and then has cognitive deficits. We, we make assumptions that they've been a good communicator before the, the injury. So um, we've got to work on that rehabilitation into what they used to have. Kids never... Well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe I should say kids didn't used to have anything because they're developing those skills as they grow and mature. So the theme of this year's Better Hearing and Speech Month is communication across the lifetime or lifespan. Um, so at the Speech Language Institute, do you see yourself working more with adults or more with infants or somewhere in between? Um, so my personal practice is with adults, and the way we set up our clinic is that we make sure that the students are working with speech pathologists that have deep clinical experiences in their area of expertise. So I work and have worked in the adult populations, so the clients I always see um, are adults. And again, they might have had a stroke or a brain injury. Some of them have... Um, uh, neurological deficits that develop with age, like dementia and Parkinson's disease. Um, that being said, our clinic works across the lifespan. So we've had uh, clients that are just a few weeks old that come in because they have uh, feeding difficulties and need a speech pathologist to help mom and dad figure out what are the best ways to feed the baby. Um, and we've had uh, school-age children come in because they have difficulty with learning or they have difficulty in communication or they stutter um, through adults and the geriatric population again that have some kind of acquired injury such as a stroke or a brain injury um, so the clinic addresses the lifespan um, where our particular speech pathologist may only work with a piece of the lifespan and also at Salis University, we have the Ear Institute, which uh, kind of follows up on the hearings part of Better Hearing and Speech Month. So do you ever find yourself working with any of the audiologists there when you maybe uh, meet a client who has both hearing and speech language disorders? Absolutely. The, um, so much of what, how we learn speech and language is through um, what we hear. And if, the, if an infant or an adult loses that ability to hear the input, we've got to partner with our audiologist to figure out how's the best way to get the messages from the outside world to the communication partner. Uh, we work hand-in-hand -hand with audiologists. 
uh, not just in the spirit of Better Hearing and Speech Month, but as partners in the community. Right, in the field of health science and audiology as well as speech language. Um, I also should probably give a shout out to our optometry fellow because um, what we don't hear, we see. And those two vision, those two channels, those two senses really help understand communication. I always give the example of um, being able to see an expression on one's face that might not match the words coming out of their mouth. So, uh, you know, I'll have one of my kids will answer me and say, fine, but I know by what their face looks like that they really don't mean fine. They're just telling me fine. And if I didn't have that ability to sort of witness that their their body language doesn't meet their words, um, that I would miss the actual communication. So, uh, you know, vision is very important to communication as well as hearing. All right. So... It's obviously easier to diagnose an adult who can tell you what issues they're facing, but with infants, in terms of hearing and speech, who they probably don't have those skills yet, how or what signs identify um, a disorder? So uh, we really rely on parents to give us that information. Um, they're, you know, they're the first teachers, and they're the ones that know their children the best. So they know. You know, I, I had a nephew that w had a, a speech and language delay, and uh, we went to visit them. They live in uh, Atlanta, and he used to point at a cabinet in their kitchen, and my sister-in-law would know that he wanted uh, Cheerios in his favorite superhero bowl, and he, they would sit him in the chair with the TV on, and all he did was point, and like... I would have never known what he was pointing at, but, but, you know, his mom did because she was very in tune to his communication abilities. So when we work with young children, we spend a lot of time interviewing the parents. Um, if they're in preschool, we want to know what they're doing um, from the eyes of the preschool teacher. They have um, a really deep understanding of what the child needs to do and how they get it done. And through interviews and observations, we then begin to understand developmentally where is the child in their speech and language skills. Um, a, a lot of times uh, when we're working with young children, it looks like play. But really, that's their occupation. That's what, that's what they're doing at that point in their lives. So to see what they need to get done, that might be a meal time that might be turn on the iPad that might be stack the blocks and um, by having the students and the supervisors get down on the floor and really get into play then we can see oh these are the skills the child has or doesn't have and that gives us a sense of where do we need to start with therapy or we might meet a parent that says you know my three-year-old can say these sounds and we can explain to them that's developmentally appropriate because they haven't um, acquired those those structures yet or their their complex um, movements that their little bodies just can't do as of yet so come back to us in a year or two if they're still not able to do it right so 
obviously the Speech Language Institute is kind of special to Salis, and not everyone in every area has access to an SLP like we do here. So how would parents who think their child has possibly a disorder get in contact with a SLP? Are they available in grade schools and stuff like that? Sure. So um, uh, one point of access for uh, parents is pediatricians. So, uh, you know, parents are really good about taking their kids every three months for the first few years of life, and that's a great place to sort of say uh, to the, the physician or the nurse practitioner or the PA that you're working with, hey, my kid's different. You know, this, maybe this is a, 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 you know, a sibling that you've, an older child that you have moved quickly through the developmental uh, steps and this child is doesn't appear to be doing that same thing you know my child walked when they were about nine months and we're now at 15 months and my second child isn't walking and the pediatrician would be a person to have that discussion with um the the second way is through your um, local education uh, agency so um early intervention which houses the birth to three population okay. uh, would come to your home and provide these services. So uh, whether it's an agency that contracts with the county or the county itself would come out and do um, a full evaluation and that might be um, someone to address the mobility issues, so an OT or a PT. Um, certainly a speech language pathologist would be on that team, an educator would probably be on that team, maybe even social work. But those um, individuals would, again, come out and interview and observe and assess in your home. And um, that's across the United States. So it's certainly um, easier in a more suburban, urban area like we are here at Salas. But even in rural areas, SLPs exist um, and are accessible. Right, and the field itself is growing rapidly. Absolutely. So. One, one of the areas we, we do see growth is the area of telepractice. So um, we will be housed in a more urban area like Philadelphia, but we'll remote into an office or a school in a more rural area that doesn't have as good accessibility to services. So as long as there's someone on the other end with a, a good computer, and um, audio and video channels, and someone to help the family sort of maneuver through the technology. Telepractice or telehealth might be a way for individuals that don't have um, immediate access or closer access to be able to, to gain um, those opportunities. And the nice thing is, is that Salus is enveloping those skills in their graduate program. So our SLP students are going to have the opportunity to practice those skills before they become clinicians in the field. That's really great. I didn't know that. Um, Also, I feel like that's special to SLP because you can't necessarily do that in optometry or or, or audiology. So I I think as as technology gets better and better, we're going to see the ability to have... um, uh, practitioners across health settings and education settings be able to use that technology to work with students and clients and patients in all their areas. Um, 
sort of an area where I've um, been able to work with technology is with radiologists. So a skill that speech pathologists have are video swallow study. So we go into the x-ray suite and we um, take uh, radiographic pictures and videos as a patient swallows. And we need a radiologist to um, interpret those studies uh, with us, with speech pathologists. And sometimes a radiologist isn't there in the hospital with us, they're somewhere else. And they look at the pictures and the videos and they send their interpretations to the hospital. Um, and that sort of remote access allows radiology to be a 24-7 service. So the hospital doesn't have to have a radiologist on site all the time. They need technologists to maneuver the cameras and to take the still um, radiographs, but to have them... Um, like physically on site physically isn't necessary. Physically on site isn't necessary. Wow, that's like incredible for accessibility in healthcare, which I feel like is a huge issue in this country and other places. Absolutely. And that's like a huge stride forward. So can you talk about some of the support groups at SLI that uh, facilitate this year's theme of communication across the lifespan? Sure. One of That's actually one of my favorite topics because I think the, especially from the, the practicing clinician side, these groups are so infrequently done in the community because they're not billable and there's no reimbursement for them. So you have to have um, uh, agencies and clinicians that are really dedicated to addressing all the needs of the individual and not just the billable needs of an individual. And um, giving students the opportunities to look at a client outside of the, the treatment room I think is a really important way to give them a, a compliment, the full complement of how a communication disorder impacts their lives. Um, so we do support groups for parents and kids um, who stutter. So the, the children have stuttering issues and the parents wanna be supportive, but it's difficult um, and they wanna push, but how hard to push. So we work with them in a support group setting and the, the kids who stutter um, get to meet other kids who stutter and share those sort of social aspects and hey, I'm, I'm not alone. And I yeah. think there's, there's empowerment to that. Yeah, communication can only be done between two people, really, right. so, or more than two people. Right. Um, another group that I'm really uh, excited to see launch is our dementia support group. So um, caregivers that provide care to individuals that have dementia really feel isolated because uh, an individual with dementia needs to be monitored at all points. So it's hard for them to go out into the community and get support because then they have to worry about, well, who's gonna watch my loved one while I'm out? So uh, Salas uh, has developed a two-track program where we're going to do um, a group activity with the individuals that have dementia around uh, a treatment philosophy called reminiscing therapy. So basically you spend a lot of time talking about things from the old days 
uh, I'm realizing as I get older, the old days are kind of <laughs> creeping up on me. Um, but we will talk about things like World War II and uh, music of the era and politics of the era. And people with dementia tend to uh, hold on to their oldest memories longer than their newer memories. And that, that reminiscing therapy sometimes settles behaviors down. It makes uh, individuals less scared uh, because they're, they're more familiar with that, in, in the, that information. Uh, so while we're doing the reminiscing therapy with the individuals with dementia, we're gonna be working with the caregivers and say, here's some tips and tricks uh, for you to do at home to make things um, you know, more calm or more organized. Um, so that the individual, the caregiver, as well as the individual with dementia, um, have more supports around them so that they, f they age better, um, so that we can, we can't stop the, the decline of, in dementia, but we can certainly, um, hold off or stay some of the changes with, with therapy. So that those kind of groups from the children's groups through the, the adult and geriatric groups really allow our students to, again, go beyond the treatment room and become um, more familiar with all the aspects, not just sort of the assessment and treatment aspects of communication disorders. Right. And they kind of join the SALS community and all yep. that fun stuff. Yep. All right, well, thank you so much for giving us some more information about the support groups. If you'd like to get inform more information about that, you can check out our site at salisuhealth.com slash SLI. Thank you for listening. My name is Alyssa Nguyen, and this is Health Science Starts Here. Check back every other week for new episodes and listen everywhere podcasts are available. To learn more about any of the topics we talked about today, visit salis.edu slash podcast.